Good morning. Let's turn today to First um, Thessalonians chapter two. First Thessalonians chapter two. Last week I began with a question. Does anybody remember what it was? Noad, put his hand up first. He gets an answer. Oh. Yeah, what makes Alexander the Great great? And then we also asked what makes the Apostle Paul great? And we spoke about Paul's ministry and the ministry that God has called each one of us to uh, to do. And we concluded that if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn what? Yeah, learn to be the servant of all. Jesus said, and whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It's pretty clear from the study of the book of 1 Thessalonians that there were people who came into Thessalonica, (coughs) into the Thessalonian church, and began to trouble the hearts of the new believers. And they began to tell them lies about the Apostle Paul. And this letter is Paul's response to them. He is defending his ministry against these attacks. Uh, No doubt the the people that came in were um, attacking what Paul taught them and how he behaved toward them and the motives behind his ministry and all of that kind of stuff. And it should not surprise us that if we are doing the work of God we will be attacked. That's just part of, that goes with the territory. That's part of um, what it is to serve the Lord. So if that happens to you, I want to warn you in advance that those who desire to live godly shall suffer persecution. That's what the scripture says. So it should not surprise you. And it should not surprise you that, that some of the attacks may come from people that you least expect it. Maybe family members, maybe friends, Maybe those who have loved you for a very long time. So don't be surprised. Don't be alarmed. It's written so that we might know that persecution will come. Well, Paul counters the attacks by reminding the Thessalonians what they know to be true. And he says nine times in this book, you know, or you yourselves know, reminding them of they were there when Paul came. They were their first-hand witnesses of Paul's ministry and life toward them. And he says, you know. And he reminds them, look at the facts. Look at the truth. Don't let your heart be troubled by lies that are propagated by the enemy. Believe the truth. Reject the lies. And that's what Paul was reminding them here. So last week, we looked at the first six verses of chapter 2. And I'm just going to go through it really quickly for those who weren't here. Um, The first thing that Paul does is he reminds them what his ministry was not. Okay, First of all, it was not in vain. Verse 2, it was not in fear. Verse 3, it was not in error. It was not in uncleanness, and it was not in deceit. Verse 4, not by novices, not to please men, 
Verse 5, not with flattering words, not with a cloak of covetousness. And verse 6, it was not an opportunity for glory seeking. So if you didn't catch all of that, uh, go online, download last week's message. It's all there for you, okay? And uh, we'll, it explains it far better than I just did right now. So that's what Paul started with, what his ministry was not. This week, we want to look at what Paul's ministry was in a positive way. And so that begins our reading in uh, verse 7. And so I'm just going to take it verse by verse and phrase by phrase as we go through here this morning, and we just pray that the Lord will bless his word to us. Verse 7, what their ministry was, gentle, gentle. He said, verse 7, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. As most of you know, I am a father of a multitude. I have seven children. And um, I, there is one memory that stands out in my mind, probably more than any other memory of every single one of my children. And it is the most tender, peaceful, loving scene that I can imagine. And that is each time Krista would take one of our babies and put that child to her breast to nurse that child, give it sustenance, give it food, give it something to drink, that tender affection stands out in my mind as one of the most precious sights of us raising our children in their infancy. Like a nursing mother, Paul was gentle. I asked her yesterday, we went for a walk around Lake Chabot, or not actually around Lake Chabot, but at Lake Chabot. Okay, we're getting up to the, you know, around part. I asked her yesterday, what are your earliest enjoyable memories of each child? And the answer came back spontaneously. She said, it was when I nursed each child. I said, yeah, that's what I thought. Um, When I nursed each child. Paul says, we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. The Lord said of himself, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The Bible says that as we minister to one another, as we minister to the saints, and as we minister to reach out to the unsaved, that 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 should be our approach, that same gentleness. He says in 2 Timothy 2.24, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. And so the first question we want to ask about your ministry today is this. Are you gentle in your ministry to others? It's a key. It's a key for effective ministry. Gentle in your ministry to others. Secondly, verse 8, affectionately longing. We don't say things that way exactly today, affectionately longing. What it means is, this is a phrase that we do say, I loved you so much, okay? That's what it means. I loved you so much. And this is what Paul was saying to the Thessalonians. He was saying, I loved you. We loved you so much. When we came and we ministered to you, we loved you so much. So he says in verse 8, so 
affectionately longing for you, or because we loved you so much, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. As we continued our walk at Lake Chabot, I said, Krista, why? Why did you nurse the children? Why? And she said, oh, uh, with real yearning, because I love them so much. And she almost started crying. I would do anything for them. And that's Paul's attitude here. Why did you nurse them this way? Why did you care for them so much? Why did you love them so much? I, because I love them so much. That's his answer. That's his attitude. They, Paul and the apostles, uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, who came into Thessalonica, they were not these cold and calculating apostles, but they yearned for the, for the Thessalonians. They longed to see them saved. And they would do anything, give their lives for them, if necessary, uh, to win them for the Lord. They longed to give their lives. Why? Because they loved them so much. It was a demonstration of their love for the Thessalonians. This may surprise you, as it did me when I heard it, but I actually had a man say to me one time, a man I knew quite well, he said, you know... I would be willing to die for you. I go, wow. <laughs> Nobody's ever said that for, to me before. I would be willing to die for you. That's what he said to me one day. I was at once humbled and rebuked, but this is the attitude of the Apostle Paul here. I would be willing to die for you if it meant that you would be saved and go on uh, in service for the Lord. So the second question for the day is this. Do you love the saints? In your ministry to the saints, do you love the saints? Third is that uh, Paul and the other missionary part of the, well, the other part of the missionary team, uh, as they came to Thessalonica, it was a ministry of tireless giving. Verse nine: For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil. For laboring, day, for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. Have you ever heard of a mother who, when her baby cries, she wakes up from a sound sleep and she says, well, just a minute here, kid. If I come and I nurse you, what's in it for me? What do I get out of this? Nor does she get out of bed and she looks for that little box on the wall with her time card to pull it out and punch the card. Does she? Have you ever seen a mother like that? She jumps out of bed. She runs into the room. She immediately takes care of the child. That's what a mother does. She's not cold and calculating. It was a, it's a ministry of tireless giving. And so I asked Krista yesterday as we continued on our walk. Now you can see it was a pretty long walk. Okay, three questions already. I said to her, let me ask you a question. How many times did you nurse our children? Now remember, we have seven of them. And most of them nursed for at least a year. How many times did you nurse our children? She says, I have no idea. I said, 
You didn't keep count? She says, no, of course not. You kept no record of the times you nursed the children? No, I didn't. I said, can I ask you a question? After they finished nursing, how many meals have you prepared for your children? 365 days a year and sometimes 366. Okay, I'm keeping track. (laughs) One meal a day? No, it's more than that. Two meals a day? Well, sometimes it's more than that. Three meals a day? Well, sometimes it's more than that. (laughs) And all the snacks and the cookies and the cakes and all the rest of it. How many meals have you cooked for your children over over their lifetime? I have no idea, she said. I have no idea. You didn't keep track? No, I didn't keep track. How many hours of sleep did you lose when they were sick? Not just as infants, but even as they grew up. I have no idea. How many lunches did you prepare for them? How many times did you do the laundry? How many times did you iron their clothes? How many times did you fold them? How many times did you put them away? How many times did you read them bedtime stories or listen to them tell all about their day at school or their day at the job or whatever it is? How often did you listen? Well, all the time. How often have you prayed for your children? Every day, all through the day. When do you stop thinking about your children? Never. What time do you clock in in the morning? And what time do you clock out in the afternoon? I never do. And what was your pay for your labor? What was your pay for serving your children day and night with labor and toil? And why did you do it? Just tell me why. What was the reason that you served your children this way? She says, because I love them, and I always will. That's the Apostle Paul. That's what he's talking about here in this passage. I affectionately, I have affectionate longing for you. I love you deeply, dearly. And Paul says that like a mother, they labored night and day, so that they could bring the gospel to them. Paul was a full-time missionary, a full-time worker. He was sent out by the church to uh, preach the gospel. But when he got to the Thessalonians, he saw that he was not going to demand anything. He was not going to say, look, I'm an apostle, you need to pay me. He said, I'm going to work night and day. Paul was a tent maker by trade, and he served by making tents in order to free them up so that he could minister to them without charge. The missionary team spared the Thessalonians any burden, even though it meant that they had to work night and day uh, for the supply of their own need. But like a mother who never thinks, what do I get out of this? What's in it for me? Rather, his thought was, how can I serve more? How can I give more? And Paul and his companions gave. Their ministry was like that of a mother. And so the question for for you and for me is this. Is your service marked by tireless giving, like a mother? Is your service like a mother? So that's the first thing that Paul looks at, what his ministry was. It was like a mother. The second part of this uh, chapter, or part of this section, is that his ministry was like a father, verses 10 through 12. And so next, Paul is going to describe that his ministry was like a father, 
A lot of fathers, unfortunately, have absolutely ruined this illustration because they have not lived as a father should. Some fathers are abusive. Some fathers are unfaithful. Some are unfair. Some show favoritism. Some are high on discipline and very low on love. Some are more consumed with their work than they are with their family. Paul is not speaking about fathers like that. Paul is speaking about fathers like he describes here. And so if you want to see what a true godly father is like, take a look at this passage. It really tells us. He describes what should be the characteristic of fathers. And once again, character is everything. So we must take the ideal example of a father and not filter it through our own experience. Many of you have had fathers who don't measure up to this. So don't filter it through that father. Rather, look at this and say, yes, this is a true father. This is what a true father is like. And Paul is describing that here, that he and his companions exemplified that ideal father as they ministered to the Thessalonians. Remember, this was a pagan society um, that Paul came into. It was paganism to its core. The Thessalonians were idolaters. They worshipped idols. They worshipped false gods. And the false gods and the worship associated with it was immoral. It was evil. It was unholy. And, And that's what they were used to. And so Paul is saying, look... I came to you as a father who cares for his children. We're going to look at what he says here in uh, verse 10. First of all, he was devout. Verse 10 says, You are witnesses and God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. The word devoutly means holy. It means holy. Holy. And he says, really, look, we were pure from evil conduct. Unlike the gods and the priests and all the rest of it that were associated with your former religion, we were holy. We were pure of evil conduct. This is the opposite of paganism. Paganism is full of vile, lewd, Sexual perversion. And Paul showed them what it meant to live the Christian life before them. He didn't just preach at them. He lived it before them. How does a man treat a woman who is not his wife? Is he pure from evil conduct? Is he a one-woman man? In the qualifications for elders and for deacons, there is quite a list of um, qualities that these men must practice. And just, these are just a few. They must be sober, uh, reverent in behavior, not given to wine, not violent, a one-woman man, and so on. You have the list in Timothy and Titus. Holiness is what a man is inside. Okay, What a man is inside. But what a man is inside, you ultimately see him practicing on the outside. Okay, and Paul says, we came to you devoutly, holy, holy in life. And so the question for us is, are we examples of holiness to those whom we serve? 
Next he says, again in verse 10, justly, you are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. That word, justly, means we were righteous. We were righteous. Not just that God imparted his righteousness to us, that's at salvation, and we are, we are declared righteous by God. But that's not what he means here. What he means here is that we lived in a righteous way. Because we have been declared righteous by God, we also lived outwardly in a righteous way, a proper way. I follow the Lord on the inside, but you have to see it on the outside. I might be holy on the inside, but the way you see it is by me living in a righteous way on the outside. Okay? And that's what he's saying here. Not only were we holy internally, set apart by God, living for him, but outwardly we demonstrated it as well. We were fair and just, impartial. We held a straight course while we were there. Righteousness is what a man or a woman is towards others. And so the question for us is this. Are we righteous to those to whom we serve? Third, he says that he was, as a father, he was blameless. Again, verse 10. You are witnesses. Again, he appeals to them and says, you know this, and so does God. He says, you are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. This has to do not just with what we are internally, not how we live and serve others outwardly, but it's our reputation in the world as well. And so we may be one thing here, but what are you like in the job? What are you like at the workplace? What are you like out in the street? What are you like when you interact with people who are not part of Calvary? What are you like there? Are you blameless? He says we were blameless among you. It has to do with our reputation before others. Now, you say, well, does that mean that he was perfect? No, it doesn't mean he was perfect. But there was never, and and Paul had many accusations thrown at him. This is actually his answer to accusations. So it doesn't mean you'll never be accused of wrongdoing, but the, the accusation will never, ever stick. There was a product that was made some years ago called Teflon. Remember Teflon? Some of you still use it. Some of it, it's on your pots and pans. Well, this is the absolute Teflon man or the Teflon woman that charges may be thrown at him, mud might be slung at him, but it never sticks. Okay, it can never, ever stick. The Teflon man. And so that is what a blameless person is. And the Thessalonians were witnesses of his life. They know that. Let me tell you something. Children imitate what they see. Children imitate what they hear. And the father sets the standard. He raises the bar. He lives at first, and then the children follow. The question I have is this. Are we blameless in our lives? Are we blameless? I want to ask, where are the men of character today? 
Where are the men who will stand in our midst and will not compromise on morals, on righteousness and justice? Where are the men who will take a stand in this generation, who will rise up and call sin what it is and not flinch? Where are the men who will challenge the injustices, the filth and the corruption of the world and have enemies trying to tear them down? Where are the men who have people slinging mud at them, but they are the Teflon men of our generation? Are you one of those Teflon men? One of those Teflon women? If you are, you are the future generation of this church. And fathers need to be like Paul, who was like this. Paul went to Thessalonica, and he says, verse um, 11, that... They were exhorting you. As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Exhorted. You know that I am not a Greek scholar. Never pretend to be. As they say, it's all Greek to me, you know. But the word is interesting in Greek. It's parakaleo. Parakaleo. Does it sound like any familiar word to you? Paraklete. Paraclete. Have you ever heard that word, paraclete, before? If you have studied the scripture, you, you may say, yeah, that reminds me. That's one of the names given of the Holy Spirit. He is our paraclete, our helper, our comforter. The word paraclete really means a comforter or a helper. And the word that is used here, of, which is exhortation or exhorted, is the word parakaleo. It comes from the same root. It means that you come alongside and you help. Oftentimes when we hear the word exhortation, we think of a thundering preacher who's just slamming the book down and and pounding his fist on the pulpit and everything else like that. That's not the idea of, of exhortation here. The exhortation here that is referred to is just come alongside and you put your arm around somebody and you help them out. And Paul says, that's what we did when we came to Thessalonica. We came alongside of you. We helped you to see that idolatry was going to bring you to hell and that God had sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins and that by believing on Him, you could be saved and free from the wrath of God. Come alongside and help. The interesting thing is that the Word has the idea of not a thundering pulpit preacher talking to a crowd, but rather on an individual basis, coming alongside, not to the whole group, but to individuals, and ministering to them in such a way that he gives them personal instruction. Some of you have appreciated the fact that somebody has taken you aside and has shared the scripture with you on a personal level, and you personally came to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Some of you know that you've had struggles in your life as a believer, And some other believer has come alongside of you and has helped to instruct you and help you to think correctly, to think biblically, to think properly. And it's helped you. That's exhortation. One who exhorts looks to the future and the end result or the consequences of your course of action. And uh, they say, you know what, if you continue down this path, it's going to lead to destruction, it's going to lead to failure. It's going to lead to uh, sin. It's going to lead to consequences you don't want to face. 
If you continue down this path, it's not helpful. It gives counsel and direction based on the future. And they say, but if you follow the Lord, if you take this action, here's the consequence, here's the result, here's the benefit that you will have if you follow it. We were exhorting you, Paul says. And so the question for us is this. Do we exhort people to make right choices now, here and now, so that the end result will be uh, for their good, for their benefit? He also says we were comforting you. Verse 11 again. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Comfort. I'm going to ask this in a negative way so you don't have to raise your hands. How many of you need comfort? Everyone. Okay. So nobody raised their hand. That's actually good. We all need it, don't we? Who doesn't need this? Encouragement is so greatly needed in our lives. And so it's not just that he exhorted them and said, look, look to the future. See where this course of action is going, but let me help you get there. That's comfort, okay? That's coming alongside and helping somebody to make the right choices, giving them the motivation to do the right thing, even when they don't feel like it. I think of tough challenges that face us as an assembly, I think of discouragements that haunt us. I think of the temptation just to flee from it all. And I think of a verse like this in Psalm 18:29. It's twice in the scripture, but it comes first in um, well, come, the one I'm looking at is Psalm 18:29. For by you, by the Lord, I can run against a troop. By my God, I can leap over a wall. Okay. It's not, here's where you need to be, here's the direction you need to go, and you say, well, there's so many obstacles in the way. There's so much interference between me and getting to that end goal. By my God, I can run against a troop, and by my God, I can leap over a wall. And Paul comforted and encouraged the saints. And so I want to ask you a question. Do you encourage the saints to press on? And do you give them the help they need to to, uh, get there? We were charging or imploring you, is next, verse 11 again. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children. You say, well, what is a charge? What does that mean? How do you charge somebody? And no, it's not a credit card to go, you know, it's not the kind of charge he's talking about. It's an exhortation. I don't even want to use that word exhortation. Really, it's, it's saying to somebody, look, here's the direction. Take it. I'm going to give you an example of this. It's a wonderful example found in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then... You will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. That's a charge. 
Are you willing to take up that charge? That's what it's, Paul is talking about. He not only comforted, not only exhorted, not only comforted, but he charged them. He said, go on well in your Christian life. Question for us. Do we use the scripture to charge the saints to keep pressing forward, to keep pressing on? Well, Paul, in doing all of this, he had a goal. And just like a father has goals for his children, has a desire to see his children walking well, going on well in their life, being a success, not necessarily materially, financially, successfully as the world says, but for the Lord. And so as a father, I have a goal for each of my children, not independently from one another, but each one of my children, I have this goal. And I think that uh, we should have the same goal for all the saints, that you should walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the goal of coming alongside of each of the saints tenderly as a mother, with direction and, and encouragement as a father, that you should live in a way that reflects that you were chosen by God for his own kingdom and for his glory. So the question for us today is this. What is your purpose in life? What is the goal of your life? And there's really only one answer that there should be. It's to glorify God. Well, you know the success of a parent is not seen in the minutes of each day. It's not seen with just a snapshot of a child, but it's seen in the overall um, end of a life of a child. How did the child do? Well, the wonderful story is this. How did they do as spiritual parents? Well, the proof of the fruit is in their ministry. The fruit of their ministry in verses 13 and 14. It says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. So we look at how the Thessalonians responded. How did they respond? First of all, they received the word of God. When our children were little... One of the things we wanted to teach them as very young children after they had finished nursing was to pick up a spoon. That's what we started with. And then we went on to forks and knives and sharp knives. And, uh, but the spoon was to get them to be able to dig in and put it up to their mouth and put most of the contents inside, okay? Most of them. And as they grew, they, they mastered it, Okay. And now they're back to their hands again. I don't know. <laughs> they received the world. It's like little children eating. Okay? They received it. They welcomed the word as coming from God. And they let the word of God change their lives. How did, they, how did their lives change? They turned to God from idols. They turned to serve the living and true God and forsook the 
false gods that they had worshipped before. And then it says they became imitators of the other churches of God. You know, one of the things that's cute, watching uh, Justin and any little child, really, you uh, stand them up on their feet, and they're kind of like, you know, this at first, and they, they spend a lot of times on their rear end, you know, and then they try again. And then pretty soon they start their first step and fall, and then the next step and fall. But we love to see that kind of progress, and finally they're walking and then running, and we go, wait, 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 slow down, just sit. Okay? We're so mixed up, the way we teach children. (laughs) Children learn by mimicking adults in walking and talking and all those other things. And uh, Paul is saying here, it's great that you believed, but you endured persecution almost from the moment you believed, and you stood firm. It's important to realize, as we said earlier, that those who desire to live godly shall suffer persecution. Satan tries to discourage us with lies that we are suffering persecution because somehow God has abandoned us. But nothing could be further from the truth. Those who suffer persecution are usually the ones who are following the closest to the Lord. Satan opposition has been there from the beginning. For example... The Christians in Judea suffered under Jewish persecution right from the get-go, right from the start. The Thessalonians suffered under Gentile persecution, it says, from their own countrymen. And so Paul is saying, look, you're imitating the original church. Just like they suffered persecution and kept going in their walk with the Lord, so you are suffering persecution and you're continuing walking with the Lord. I want to go back to chapter 1 for just a minute, verse 10, because this is still in the context of what Paul is talking about here. One of the things that they did is they they forsook their idols, trusted in the living God to serve and worship him, and it says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's a wonderful verse. It's saying that the Lord Jesus Christ has already taken your wrath upon himself. He bore it when he died on the cross for you. And in doing so, he has freed you from the wrath to come. There is wrath that is still coming. God is going to punish sin. But he's not going to punish your sin because he's already punished his son. You, believers are free from the wrath to come. It will not have any effect on you because Jesus has borne it all. And when he bore it all on the cross, he said, it is finished. Every sin that you have ever committed, that you are committing, and that you will ever commit, Jesus bore the wrath of God upon himself for those sins. And it is finished. You will never, ever, ever face the wrath of God because Jesus bore it all. Those who are believers. Well, there was opposition to the ministry, and we see that in verses 15 and 16. As a contrast to um, what happened, well, how the Thessalonians responded, there were those who um, were trying to trouble the church. And verse 15 says this, uh, he's talking about the uh, persecution by the Jews to those 
to the church in Judea, and he says, those same people killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. And so I want to show you as a contrast what Paul just finished saying to the Thessalonians and what he is now going to say about these ones who are troubling the Thessalonican church. And he says, as a contrast, uh, verse um, 15, they did not receive the word. What did they do instead? They killed Jesus. It was the Jews who put him on the cross. And these same Jews who were trying to protect uh, their religion, if you will, were persecuting Paul and saying, no, you cannot preach this gospel to the Gentiles. They killed Jesus. They killed the prophets. And God is going to hold them accountable for this. Secondly, they did not welcome the word. It says, Paul's saying here, is as he's preaching the gospel to, to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, he says, they persecuted us. These same ones persecuted us. They did not let the word of God change their lives. And it says they do not please God. Certainly they do not imitate the churches because it says they're contrary to all men. They persecuted the apostles. They forbid them to speak, trying to prevent the salvation of souls. And God is speaking through the apostle Paul here and he's saying this. They are trying to stop the gospel from reaching precious, unsaved souls. And in doing so, they are adding wrath upon wrath, or they're, they're um, uh, filling up the wrath of God in full measure against themselves. The measure of their sins. And so Paul can reach only one conclusion. Unlike the Thessalonians who will never face the wrath of God to come, Paul is saying here very clearly that they do, that these persecutors um, will face the wrath of God. They are subject to the wrath of God because they stand in opposition to God and God's purposes. If God has sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for the salvation of all who will believe, and there is a group of people who are trying to hinder the gospel message from going out, they are heaping up judgment upon themselves and the wrath of God against themselves because of it. There is a time coming when God's wrath will be poured out upon all those who do not believe and particularly upon those who try to prevent others from coming to know the Savior. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ? He said in Matthew chapter 18, verses 6 and 7, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. This is the same Lord Jesus whom we talked about earlier today where we said he is gentle. But listen to what he says to those who would prevent people from coming to know him. He says it would be better 
if a millstone, a great large stone that was meant to crush grain were put around their neck and they were cast into the sea, drowned in the depth of the sea, woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offenses come. Very strong words. They are subject to the wrath of God. Well, as a conclusion, I want to say this. I think about the saints here. I think about you. And I think about how many of you have served the Lord with tender, compassionate affection, with hearts like a mother. And I think of many of you who have served the Lord with holy lives, devout lives, righteous lives, comforting helping the believers, and have been exemplary in your character before the saints. I think of how many of you have served the Lord and have exhorted and encouraged and charged the saints to press on. I think of a lifetime lived out for the Lord. Sometimes we can become discouraged. Sometimes we can become disheartened. But there's a, very, there's a verse that is very precious, a section of Scripture that is very precious to me when I think like that. And it's found in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust to forget. First of all, God is never unjust. He is just and righteous. And God never forgets. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name. In that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Don't stop now. That you do not become sluggish. But imitate, just like the Thessalonians imitated the churches of Judea. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Lord, as we look back at Paul and his ministry to the Thessalonians, we are challenged, Lord, to the core of how we should live and move and serve you and the saints, Lord. We just pray that we might be like mothers, tender-hearted, compassionate, loving, caring, without thought of um, our own expense, without thought of our own um, diligence or any of these things, but just doing it because we love the saints and we love you. Thank you, Lord, for the illustration of mothers who we've seen firsthand do this for their own children. Help us to be like that, Lord, in our own lives towards the saints. Help us to be like fathers with exhortation, comfort, charging, encouraging, but Lord, with lives that are holy, righteous, dedicated to you in every way. Lord, we pray that we would look back and follow hard after those who have gone before us. We have such a cloud of witnesses before us who have lived this way before you, and Lord, we want to imitate them as they imitated you. And Lord, we pray that our lives might reflect this kind of compassion and love and challenge that we have before us from this chapter. 
We pray, Lord, that you might make us fruitful and effective in our ministry, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.